thanks for downloading this episode from Teachers Talk Radio. You can find the full schedule and listen back to all our shows at ttradio.org. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, leading publishers of books, directories, educational guides and magazines aimed at schools in the UK and beyond. Enjoy the podcast. Hello, welcome to The Late Show with Daisy and Lizzie. In this episode, we're going to be looking at the history of educational innovation. In the last few weeks, uh, the world of education has been buzzing with talk of ChatGPT. It's the new artificial intelligence model which can produce original essays on demand. And as a result, it's got everybody talking about the future of assessment, the future of homework, so on and so forth. But of course, innovation is not new. Debates about the future of education have a very long history and we are going to explore them in this podcast. So we're actually going to start with an innovation which uh, we nowadays, it's, it's the thing we all want to overturn, it's textbooks. <laughs> um, so textbooks are the thing that modern innovations uh, are always going to replace. But once upon a time, textbooks were themselves the latest innovation. So we are going to start in the 16th century with printing, textbooks, so on and so forth. So Lizzie, what have you got for us? So printing is this great innovation, comes around in the 15th century. We all hopefully know about Gutenberg and his famous Bible. But it takes a while before we get cheap, mass-produced texts. And that starts to come about in the, the later part of the 16th century and into the 17th century. And if you look at woodcut illustrations to get a sense of what medieval schools were like before this innovation of printing, what you often see is you've got a schoolmaster, they're standing at a lectern, and they're reading from you know perhaps a printed text, but more likely a manuscript, to an eager audience of pupils who may well be copying down some of what is said on a writing tablet or maybe uh, with a bit of parchment. So those schools would have been quite difficult places. I think we all know about the the sort of the benefits of dictation, but also the perils of dictation. And having pupils which don't have their own uh, book that they can readily reference does make life difficult. So a lot of schoolmasters in the 16th century, they do start to innovate. They start to devise their own textbooks, their own primers. And perhaps a cynical way of looking at this is that they want to earn an easy income from their captive audience. But it's also ones who are teaching who get a chance to really show their their pedagogy. They're often revising these texts. They're testing them on a live audience of pupils and working out how to make them better. And these cheap, readily available textbooks can be bound, interleaved with blank pages, which enables readers to make their own notes and to jot the things down as, as they go along. And it becomes possible to study outside of the classroom and away from the schoolmaster. So it becomes possible to, to in fact, do some homework. So you're telling me homework was an innovation once. So you're saying some of the earliest, I suppose, some of the earliest books that are printed and published are basically what we think of now as textbooks, is that what you're saying? There's definitely a strong didactic thrust in printing and it's the later part of the 16th century. It's once the technology becomes cheaper that you start to get books being produced for children. And I'm always struck, I was interested when you say cheaper there, because whenever you read anything about this, I think the the, the, under, the superficial sort of understanding is, well, the monks used to just do all the copying and nobody could own any books, and then Gutenberg came along and suddenly there were cheap books everywhere. But when you look at some of the prices of some of these early books, they're still really expensive. Sure, they're cheaper than a manus- an illuminated manuscript, but they're still not cheap. How... how uh, when you say they're for children, there's some for children. How, how, what, 
would all children have had these? Would it have been one between sort of 30? Like what's, how, how widespread are these textbooks? So by the time you get into the 17th century, they are quite widespread. And what you benefit from at that point is the secondhand market in these books too. So we often have textbooks that were printed um, in the 17th century in our, in our collection that were still being used by boys in the 19th century. Wow. So some of these texts really have great longevity. Yeah. They get used down the ages and passed from father to son. Brilliant. So what are the, are there particularly famous ones? Are there ones that are particularly sort of endure and become classics i'm thinking now someone recently on twitter posted a picture of the cambridge latin course with caecilius and obviously <laughs> caecilius if you've ever studied the cambridge latin course caecilius has got a cult following and people can you know, tell you all these family names and caecilius estin horta and what have you so is there an equivalent is there an equivalent in the sort of 17th century of a, a cult textbook that, that studied down the ages well, you know what? I managed a whole episode last time not talking about Westminster School. <laughs> so you're going to have to indulge me when okay. I talk a little bit sure. about the great 17th century okay. headmaster yeah. of Westminster, Dr. Richard Busby, yeah. who decided to publish his own Latin and Greek grammars, which went on to be used across the country and across the centuries. So they were still being popularly used in the 19th century. And a, a, an academic, Dr. Ray Schreier, who specialises in the history of science, has recently come up with this interesting theory about Busby's grammars, which he set out in a blog for the Royal Society. Because a number of Busby's pupils, John Locke, Robert Hooke, Christopher Wren, were all prominent natural scientists and early fellows of the Royal Society. And Schreier thinks that although the classical education which these men received in Latin and Greek might seem, at first glance, as the diametric opposite of the practical education one might need to be a scientist, in fact, Busby's textbooks and teaching methods were perhaps an ideal preparation. So he says that the numerous grammars that Busby wrote are all characterised by being highly systematic and visually sophisticated, and they tend towards abstract rules. So thus his Latin grammar contains far fewer examples than the common King's grammar, and far less in way of mnemonics. His Greek grammar was filled with tables and variety of diagrams that visualised every aspect of the language. And he even produced a Hebrew grammar, which only survives in, in manuscript. And whilst it might not make users appreciate the beauty of Hebrew poetry, it would offer a systematic treatment of the language's intricate morphology. So tries arguing that the way in which Busby prepares his textbooks really shapes the way his pupils understand languages and that they can then extrapolate from that and take that approach to their scientific endeavours. So that is very interesting. I think we should do a future episode on the great classic science debate because there is a big debate in the 19th century about if we were preparing students for a scientific technological world should we be teaching them Latin and Greek? <laughs> and it does sound a bit like the, the, the chap you're quoting there is, is almost rehashing some of those arguments and saying, yeah, you know, Wren and, 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 and whoever, these guys, it was fine for them to learn uh, classics because that was actually preparing them for science in, in a way you didn't know. Is that kind of the argument that he's making? Yeah, I think, he, yeah. I think he's saying that the opposition we set between these, okay. these disciplines is yeah. perhaps slightly artificial. Okay. And when you were talking about Busby's uh, textbooks, I, I was thinking that I was trying to apply it to sort of modern learning theory and what will modern learning theorists make of it. So not having as many examples, I would say that would generally be seen now as a bit of a no-no. <laughs> uh, and I'd probably say not even, even, even in the 19th century, John Stuart Mill's writing some very interesting stuff about the role of examples in logic. So not having lots of examples, probably not a great thing. 
you know, just relying on abstract rules, not a great thing. But when you were saying they're very visual and he's got this, uh, you know, visual sort of uh, diagrams, whatever, that's very on trend now with dual coding theory. So dual, dual coding theory is a theory that's very popular now about how laying out, how you lay out material is incredibly important. And, and I must say, um, the re- really interesting writer on multimedia learning, Richard Mayer, who's come up with lots of principles about how you should lay out material in a textbook or how you should lay it out on a, on a PowerPoint. Um, so I think if, if, if Busby is thinking carefully about that, then that's definitely tick. You know, we're going to put a tick in that box. <laughs> um, but the other, the other thing where I think, again, slightly, sort of slightly worries, and again, this comes back to the great Latin classics debate, is transferability of skills. <laughs> if you learn Latin, that will make you good at Latin. If you learn Greek, that will make you good at Greek. Uh, there might be some near transfer in that then perhaps that's going to, you know, if you learn another language, that might make you a bit better at learning it. But if the main aim is to learn the other language, like French, you're probably better off just starting by learning French. <laughs> I can't um, argue with that, Daisy. Okay. <laughs> but anyway, this is very interesting. I'm fascinated to, to learn about, about, about Busby. So, so tell me more. So we've got these new textbooks that become very popular that are used outside of Westminster School. They're used everywhere. So, so that's new else? technology in education. I wanted to fast forward to the 18th century, which is often seen as a really important period in terms of the way that we think of children. So I want to talk more about ideological revolution. And particularly, I want to talk about French philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Prior to Rousseau, there were two popular conceptions of children. The first, which is particularly strong amongst evangelical communities, is that children are born inherently sinful, and therefore education is needed as a corrective. This was was challenged, and you have uh, the philosopher John Locke, who suggests that children are in fact this blank slate, and therefore in need of of shaping and instruction. And he develops these um, thoughts in a a work that he produces called Some Thoughts Concerning Education, which is published in 1693. So that's where we are in sort of with, with children at that kind of time. They're either evil and constantly in need of of correction and reform or they're just absolutely blank slates no sense of of individuality and in need again of shaping and instructing Rousseau comes along and he sort of blows all these ideas out of the water he suggests that children are in fact born as unique individuals and that they're naturally good and it's in fact human interference that corrupts them um, and, and sort of mars this state of innocence and it's this human interaction that results in bad behaviours and, and perverts children from from this good um, character which they're born with. So those that's a lovely summary because I think that debate is still present implicitly in so many modern educational debates. So I think it's lovely to have that summary there. Obviously we're talking about educational innovation today, we're not going to go into huge depth on Rousseau, but... Rousseau himself, shall we say, with his own attitude to his own children, perhaps not the best at putting into practice his own theories, but perhaps we'll leave that for another day. All right, so we've got innovation in the sphere of ideas, in the sphere of ideology now. What kind of practical impact do do, do these new ideas have, would you say? In reality, the impact of Rousseau is pretty limited, but he is widely read and enthusiastically applied by a few individuals. So I wanted to talk about um, a little cluster of individuals. There's a guy called Richard Lovell Edgeworth, and he has a friend called Thomas Day. And they write their own works inspired by Rousseau's teachings, and that helps disseminate these kind of ideas to an English audience. And Edgeworth, he believes that that schoolboys are taught to consider schools as prisons, 
and as a consequence they see books and learning as part of captivity and sort of taking them away from their, their natural childhood. And he tries to follow some of these um, ideas with his own son, but it doesn't end that well for him and, and Dick, his son, becomes increasingly willful and sort of difficult to control and in the end they just completely give up and, and send him off to school. Okay, all right. It's always interesting, that's a thought experiment. And there's lots of entertaining stories, really, (laughs) about aristocratic parents in the 18th century being completely uh, slavish in their devotion to to Rousseau, and as a consequence, having children that are completely running havoc. One of these children is Charles James Fox, the future sort of Whig luminary. Fox's father, Lord Holland, is constantly trying to coddle his son and, and appeal to his every whim. He gets a, a new watch and Charles James Fox is longing to break it. And in the end, his father just gives him the watch and allows him to smash it on the floor. Lizzie, I've got to interrupt you because you know what this is making me think? This is making me think, you know, where is like the 18th century mum's net? Yeah, because this feels to me like a mum's net, Fred. It feels to me, you know, uh, can you believe I've got this friend, he let his son break his really expensive watch. What do you think of this? I feel like, you know, there's some, some mum's net commenting on pairing styles uh, things that could be happening here but but go on carry on carry on I interrupted yeah. no it definitely puts paid to I guess the notions we have that this kind of indulgent parenting is, mm-hmm. is really a, only a result of the sort of like late 20th century mm-hmm. because you, you you definitely see it happening there the young fox is desperate to see a wall demolished on the family estate and it happens the demolition takes place whilst he's away at school and he's so disappointed when he returns home that his father orders the wall to be reconstructed so that it can be demolished again That's brilliant. <laughs> and his son can witness it. That, that is brilliant. And as you say, some of, maybe some of the trends we think are, are 20th century or post-1960s have got older origins, as we can see there. Yeah. And I have to tell you about Thomas Day. So, so Thomas Day is, you know, so in love with the, these writings of Rousseau. Um, he reads Emile, um, Rousseau's sort of great novel where he sets out this idea for educating a young boy. And he decides that he wants to to find the ideal woman to marry. And he's he's got very specific ideas about what the ideal woman is going to be like. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, a leading publisher of books, directories, educational guides and magazines specifically aimed at forward-thinking schools in the UK and beyond. Have you checked out their latest releases? Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. So Day resolves, if possible, that his wife should have a taste for literature and science, for moral and patriotic philosophy. So might she be his companion in that retirement to which he had destined himself and assist him forming the minds of his children his children, not their children, uh, to stubborn virtue and high exertion. He resolved also that she should be simple as a mountain girl in her dress, <laughs> her diet and her manners, fearless and intrepid as the Spartan wives and Roman heroines. All right, so we've done mum's net, and mum's net, and now you're telling me this is like Tinder, right? <laughs> this is like he's writing some kind of like profile for the, the the woman he wants to marry. Is this it? Yeah, totally. Right. But unfortunately for him, nobody swipes right. <laughs> um, and yeah, go on. Instead, what he has to do is yeah. he goes to two orphanages to find a bride. He goes with a friend and decides to pick out two girls who he's going to 
try and train up to be his ideal woman. So he collects one from an orphanage up in Shrewsbury. He goes with a, a friend of his, which is helpful because he's actually rather overwhelmed by the choice. And it's actually his friend, a chap called John Bicknell, who helps him select. Once he's found this girl, who he christens Sabrina, because her existing name isn't suitable, <laughs> he goes down to, to London and he finds another girl, he selects another girl, who he gives the name Lucretia. In defence of the orphanages, they, they do have some checks and balances mm -hmm. in, in place. So they make sure that he is going to provide financial support for these young girls, that he is going to find them a, a suitable occupation if, he's, if they're not going to remain as part of his household. Um, and in one case, they actually insist that he has to be married, which he obviously isn't. <laughs> so what he does is he gives his friend's name Edgeworth <laughs> instead. Yeah. So he, he collects them under false pretenses. And once he's got these two girls, he sets about this um, new plan of education. And it's very important to him that they should be um, sequestered away from corrupting influences. So he actually takes them off to France where he, they won't be able to talk to the locals. And he begins his process of instruction. He teaches them to, to read and to write. But he also has all kinds of other strange tests which he subjects them to. He doesn't want them to be easily frightened or to react, obviously, to pain. So he starts burning them with sealing wax. <laughs> Goodness. Yeah. And he gets hold of a firearm and he, he shoots at Sabrina's skirts in the hope that she won't get too too frightened and, and jump out of the way. Yeah, this is always this is the dark side of educational experiments. This is what, yeah. Okay, go on, carry on. It's all pretty creepy and pretty, pretty strange. Lucretia, he decides, just isn't intellectually up to the job. So he decides to send her back to an apprenticeship and she becomes a milner. And okay. I think is very relieved. And she, <laughs> she, she has the money that that's settled upon okay. her. Yeah. Sabrina, he does persevere with, but in the end, he, he realises it, it's not going anywhere. So he sends her off to, to a boarding school. Wow, um, so he kind of just gets bored of it. He's got his experiment, doesn't work out, not happy with it. Oh, off you go. Yeah, and of course he decides yeah. it doesn't work out because he hasn't picked the right women. Of, it's, of course. There's nothing course. flawed at all with his own teaching methods. Well, I will say now that is a constant theme in all <laughs> educational experiment. If it doesn't work out, it's never the new technology's fault. It's never, you know, it's never the innovation. It's never the, the pedagogy. It's always, oh, you know, there's something wrong with the children, you know. Um, that's a... A constant thing. How old were these girls when he? So I think uh, one was eleven and the other was twelve. Okay. And, and the orphanage. This is in England, but he takes them off to France. Yeah. So there's he goes to to an orphanage in London and an orphanage in Shrewsbury. So they've been living in an orphanage in London and Shrewsbury. So they're eleven and twelve, and suddenly he picks them up, takes them to France, and starts shooting at them. Shooting at them. <laughs> yeah. Right. Okay. Brilliant. Um, yes. Yeah. And he, and he makes them write right. letters to all of his friends, right. um, too. Okay. So there, there's these yeah. very sweet letters that they write. Mm -hmm. um, saying, they survive, those letters. Yeah, so some, uh, some of the letters uh, that they yeah. send, because they send letters to, yeah. um, to the Edgeworths, his friends. Okay. And Sabrina's story has quite a strange ending, too, because so she, she does go off um, to school. And then John Bicknell, this lawyer friend, who'd actually been with Day and, and select helped select Sabrina. Um, you know, he was overwhelmed by the choice, so, so it was Bicknell who actually selected Sabrina. Ultimately, re-encounters her and proposes marriage, and they end up getting married and, and having children together. Okay, so, this is always one of those things, isn't it? You, you sort of write this up in a modern context, and it 
could sound a lot worse than it is, but I'm not going to do that. We're just going to let it sit as it is. People can put their own spin on it. Okay, but look, it ends happily. They live happily ever after, maybe. He he actually dies quite young, so okay, she, she's a married widow. So she perhaps lives Very happily, happily ever after. Happily ever yeah. after. She yeah. actually works for the the Bernie family. Um, oh, right. You know the novelist yeah, Annie yeah. Bernie. She yeah, yeah. she, she yeah. works for her brother. So okay. I mean, she she certainly has a, a life. Um, <laughs> <laughs> right, and, okay. and potentially. Uh, a more comfortable one than she might have had if she'd remained Very in the true. orphanage after the, yeah. the initial horrors had subsided. <laughs> okay, and she ends up back in England. So she ends up. So yes, he takes them. He takes okay. them back to England. Fra- France is a bit Great. of a, a misadventure. Okay. Obviously, this is is both horrific and entertaining yeah. in equal parts. But there's a few things that I think we can take away from Russo. One is that like politics always really comes into education. So the people who are adopting Rousseau's ideas are, are, are people who are politically sympathetic to that line of, of thinking. You know, it's, it's the Whig circles that are adopting Rousseau's principles of education. And, you know, that's something that doesn't, doesn't really change. And a lot of these ideas, they, they, they don't have much success in the 18th century, but they do start to come back round again in the late 19th and early 20th century focus on child psychology you know you can see some of these themes slightly creeping through into perhaps Montessori schools or, or, or things like that well I would definitely say Rousseau is, is hugely influential even amongst people who have, have never heard him these, these ideas are, are very influential on modern education that would be my argument I, ideas ideas do have impact and not always a good impact and I suppose I always think you know, because of that you've got to be responsible when you're having ideas because they're not just uh they're not, they're not just castles in the sky sometimes. They have a, 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 a real-world effect on, on real people. Okay, so that's uh, you, you've given us a couple of, of, of really interesting examples of innovation. We've got textbooks, ideological innovation. Should we look at the 20th century now? Or have you got, you got anything more for us before then? Let's just go yeah. briefly into the 19th century. Okay. Yeah. And uh, innovation in terms of what's actually going on in, in the classroom. Mm-hmm. So we have someone called Andrew Bell, who is a chaplain. He's working in Madras in India, and he decides to start a school for the illegitimate offspring of European soldiers. And this is where it's, you know, incredibly... I'm going to make a wild guess here. There's not a small number. No, there's certainly right. not. There's certainly not a small number. Right. And so, yeah. it's a rather questionable motivation because he wants to remove these children from what he perceives to be a corrupting influence Mm -hmm. of their Indian mothers Mm -hmm. and through doing so to make them useful members of the European community in India. He goes out and he actually learns from and looks at a lot of teaching practices in the local Hindu schools and decides that he can adapt and apply those in this school that he's established. And as you said, there's a lot of children in, in this school and there's only one of him. So he needs to work out a way to communicate to that number of children effectively. And so he develops this system. It's sometimes called the Bell system, the Madras system, sometimes called the Monitorial system. But it's essentially using children to teach other children within the schoolroom. So he, as the the leading master, teaches these children, works out which ones are the brightest, the most able. And those are given responsibility on quite large groups of other children within the school. Do we have any accounts from any of the monitors or any of the students or from Bell himself of are people learning, are the st- are children learning in the system? They must, they must be getting something, presumably it's better than nothing or what? Yeah, I think that's the argument really. It is 
better yeah. than nothing, but yeah. it's certainly not optimal. So Bell ends up coming back to the UK for reasons of health, um, and he publishes work explaining what, what he set out and did. Another educator independently comes up with a very similar model, a guy called Joseph Lancaster, who's a, a Quaker and a schoolmaster in London, and he's also very interested in educating the poor. So again, you've got these these issues with very large numbers of children, not very much money, not very many schoolmasters. So how do you make that stretch? Those two systems begin to be popular in England, even though Bell really never had any intention of it being adopted back in his home country. And then from England, they get exported back out into different colonial possessions. So this becomes really a a worldwide system of education. And it's backed, it's supported by a couple of groups, both of which have a slight religious motivation. Bell ends up being supported by the Anglican community and Lancaster by Quakers and and nonconformists. But both of these very similar ideas of using pupils within the school get adopted and pushed out uh, to different communities. So, and I suppose they're addressing that issue, which is a perennial issue in education of, uh, and we're going to see it again actually when we come up into the 20th century it's, it's still an issue now or the 21st century but it's it's a many to one problem it's that you've often got a lot of students who will all have differing background knowledge arrive in different places move at different speeds and you've got one teacher and the more pupils you have the harder and harder it gets to manage that so that's a very early innovation and a, a, an attempt to deal with that that's also dealing with the constraint of not really having very much money they do make yeah. arguments beyond yeah. the practical. They do claim yeah. that that the act of teaching mm-hmm. is one of the ways of really reinforcing learning. I can see for the pupils who are chosen as the monitors, it's often said, isn't it, if to try when you teach something, that's when you get the better understanding of it. And I'm always slightly wary of that because it probably depends how well you teach it. <laughs> yes. Um, but I can see how potentially for those monitors, it would depend, but they, 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 they may well... You know that process of having to uh, learn from the teacher and then and then explain it to their to their peers that that might be useful. I can also see how it might might not be. Um, so, do, is, is there anything more? Do we have any sort of ideas of yeah? Yeah. So I sort of do, yeah. I slightly sidestepped your question about you know yeah. was it successful? Yeah. Do we have much evidence of it? Well, we have an interesting test case because it's actually adopted in one of the English public schools, um, mm. which we've talked about in the earlier episodes. It was adopted at Charterhouse School in the early 19th century. And at the time, it was a real vogue. It was very popular with parents. The numbers um, at the school suddenly went whooshed up. um, And lots of people were very excited by this new method of teaching. It slightly dies a death because they discover that some of these pupils who've been subject to the Bell system, once they arrive at university, aren't really keeping up with their peers. Okay. And... Yeah. sort of shatters the dream so you see this is why with my assessment hat on again i say this is why you need assessment uh, because otherwise you can have all these ideas you can have all these innovations but if you haven't got some way of measuring if they're working or not it can take a very very long time before you realize so in this case you're not realizing until these students are leaving school and getting to university whereas i would say you know if only they'd had um Maybe they'd had comparative judgment, uh, then uh, <laughs> we'd have all known much sooner. Okay, so that doesn't really work out. That's uh, so. Then we're back to kind of maybe the the, the traditional model. We've got a teacher and a, and a class. So does that bring us up? Should we, should we move to look at the 20th yeah? Century let's now? look at the twentieth century. So I've got a couple of things. You so obviously the twentieth century we start getting, if you like, 
uh, the beginnings of information technology. And again, a lot of the innovations I'm going to look at are absolutely dealing with this issue around what do you do when you've got lots of students all moving at different speeds and only one teacher? How do you handle that? Obviously, one way of handling it is say, well, let's just have smaller class sizes. And in a sense, that's been a constant theme throughout a lot of modern educational policy debates. Another another theme is, well, can we use modern modern information technologies? And you you you've got. I, I guess it's it's pretty obvious when 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 films and TV starts to come along, you absolutely can see how people will go, wow, this absolutely addresses that problem because we can now have students, if you like, I don't know, watching a film and going at their own pace and when video recorders come along pausing or whatever and that is certainly the the belief lots of people have in the early days of the tv and the motion picture and most famously edison thomas edison the inventor makes some big claims about this probably his most famous claim 1913 he says books will soon be obsolete in the public schools public schools obviously being used here uh, i will note in the american sense to mean state <laughs> schools um and he goes on to say scholars will be instructed through the eye it is possible to teach every branch of human knowledge with the motion picture. Our school system will be completely changed inside of 10 years. Now, Edison was, as well as being an amazing inventor, a bit of a, bit of a publicist. He was good at that. So he loved getting attention, saying things. So there was perhaps an element even at the time where he knew he was uh, uh, perhaps deliberately overrating it to, to get some attention. But obviously that did not happen. <laughs> no, though um, I guess we yeah. do have a bit of a sense of that in, with the Open University, don't we, and, and their programming. So I, I was going to ask you that, and you're obviously a student at the OU, is that right? Yeah, I so am. I think the OU is a tremendous and rare example of very successful educational innovation. So, yeah, obviously, back in the day, you used to, what, they used to put the programmes on at 3am, didn't they? And people mm. used to set their video recorders for it, and then if you set the wrong channel, you were obviously <laughs> just getting the test card for an hour. Is that how it used to work? Like, yeah, that's right, that's yeah. right. And in yeah. fact, I was just reading the other day a memoir of someone who had to clear out a relative's yeah. um, house, a, a relative who'd been unable to work, mm. and they found this huge stock of uh, mm. videos of, of IOU documentaries, which yeah. they'd recorded. Amazing, amazing. And I always like the OU because I think it builds a little bit on some of the things we were talking about in our previous episode about working class autodidacts, that it's trying to, people who are trying to fit education into busy lives, they don't have the time for full-time education, they've got families, they've got jobs, they've got the money to, to go full-time, but they're, they're fitting it in and the OU is helping them do that by, back in the day, putting things on at funny hours of the, uh, of, of the day, but nowadays, obviously, you can use other technology to do that, so... Yeah, definitely. That's a, that is a great example where perhaps Edison wasn't completely wrong. Um, what I will say at this point is he was talking about the school system. Um, I think the OU has been very successful in an adult education system. One of the things I'm always keen to emphasise is the, the big differences between adult education and school education. The big challenge, obviously, of a lot of school education is motivation. Uh, and the thing about the OU is obviously generally the people who sign up for courses want to sign up for it, tend to be relatively highly motivated. Um, whereas when you're looking at a school system, you have varying degrees of, of, of motivation and willingness to learn. And that's something to, to, to think about as well. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, a leading publisher of books, directories, educational guides and magazines specifically aimed at forward thinking schools in the UK and beyond. Have you checked out their latest releases? Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. So the motion picture and the TV definitely had some impact, but they didn't have the impact that Edison might have predicted or wanted. Let's fast forward then to later in the 20th century. What other big innovations are there in the 20th century? 
There's one really interesting one that's probably been totally forgotten about now, which is called the teaching machine. And this is developed in the 1950s by the psychologist B.F. Skinner. Skinner is a really famous behaviourist. He does, uh, that means he does a lot of experiments a bit like those ones that Pavlov does on his dog. So what Skinner's trying to do with animals and with humans is reward them for good behaviour so you get more good behaviour and punish or withhold rewards when there's bad behaviour. And Skinner does lots of work on rats, pigeons, whatever. And your classic example is if a rat presses a button and gets a treat, then it's more likely to press the button in future. It keeps getting a treat every time it presses the button. You're then reinforcing that behaviour, pressing the button. So Skinner's obviously thinking, can I apply this to teaching? Can I apply it to students learning? Now, I will just point out here before I explain how the teaching machine works. I've given quite a simplified caricature of it. There's still big debates around behaviourism. It was very popular in its day. As I say, Skinner was a bit of a rock star. It then went out of fashion, and, and there are those today, but there are those today who would say, actually, that's a bit unfair. There are some things of value in it, and, and perhaps maybe it got damaged a bit by some of Skinner's wilder flights of fancy, but there's a, there's a core that matters. Anyway, regardless of what you think about that, what Skinner's trying to do is take these behaviourist principles, apply them to learning, and he develops this teaching machine. You can see videos of um, very cute 1960s kids using this teaching machine and nowadays I think you know when we're used to computers they do look they look quite basic you feel like you want to go up to the kids and say wait till the phone comes along <laughs> but I think they would have been quite cutting edge in their day and how they work is the student will see a little bit of text in a window there'll be a, you know, a couple of sentences and maybe a part of the sentence will be missing the student has to supply the missing part by writing that on a piece of paper that's in the machine and when the student writes their answer, they can press a button and the correct answer will pop up. So the idea is if they've got the right answer, it's that's reinforced it. And if they put the wrong answer, they can now see the right answer. Now, we know today, obviously, that students are not all learning via teaching machines. So why? Why didn't that happen? Well, well I think that a lot of reasons suggested. I think the most plausible explanation is these teaching machines don't work for the same reason the monitorial system doesn't work is no one really knows what's going on, what the students are writing. Skinner says a classroom in which these machines are being used is one of intense concentration, but is it? Um, what if it isn't? What's going to happen? What if one a student decides to nap? What if they decide to look at the right answers before they write anything? That's never explained what happens. And I think, as with the monitorial system, one of the aims of the teacher machine is to eliminate the teacher or reduce the need for them. But what, what if you can't? Like, What if you actually need an adult in the room. So the teaching machines didn't really work out. What's happened since then? I'll touch on two more recent innovations, which I think we'll all be more familiar with. One is all about hardware, the importance of getting the right kit. So there's been a lot of effort and money spent in the past few decades in a lot of systems, providing students with computers, laptops, tablets, and then also kitting out classrooms with things like interactive whiteboards. I remember they were first coming in as I started teaching. I remember getting one in my, my class. It was a huge deal. <laughs> now, there can obviously be some value to these bits of kit. And you saw in the pandemic, it was important for students to have devices so they could stay in touch. But all the research shows that the kit on its own, the hardware on its own is not enough. You've got to be thinking about what's the content you're teaching, what's the training teachers are getting. And often these intangibles, these invisible parts of learning, they get ignored. Um, when, when you have these big investments in hardware. And I think that's just not as shiny as it. It's not a politician, if they're making a big investment in education, it's great to be able to point to some kit. 
if you point to a new teaching technique that's being rolled out that's not as shiny it's not as not as glamorous i think that's one thing and then another linked idea that's really popular and keeps getting a bit of a resurgence is this idea that students don't need to know anything anymore because they can look it up on google so if we give them all this hardware they can just teach themselves everything that they need and again there's there's huge issues with this there's big research in cognitive science that in order to uh, in, in order to think properly in order to think about complicated issues we need facts in long-term memory we can't rely on outsourcing them to the crowd to the cloud sorry and my favorite example of this is imagine reading a book where you don't know the meaning of half the words sure you can go and look up every word on the internet but do you not think that's going to compromise your reading experience <laughs> you're going to understand it as well so we do still need to know things but this idea that google and latterly chat gpt mean we don't have to teach facts anymore students don't have to learn facts anymore very pervasive keeps coming around again and again and i feel like almost every new innovation every new technological innovation leads to this 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 idea uh coming coming kind of coming back from the dead again so those are some of uh some of the some of the innovations i think we've seen in the the late 20th early 21st century there's always nice stories in the news of of pupils managing to teach themselves yeah. just to kind of almost loop back to mm -hmm. to our last episode on autodidacticism mm -hmm. there was a big story a few weeks ago about a little boy called teddy from portishead mm -hmm. who taught himself to read using his tablet age two and can mm -hmm. now count a uh, hundred in half a dozen different languages yeah. I, th I think his mother yeah. overheard him yeah. making some noises yeah. to himself and I think most parents would think um oh yeah. you know it's just my um my my yeah. toddler experimenting with with different noises mm. but she turned around and realized he was counting to 10 in mandarin um <laughs> well I love this well there you go so um I'm normally quite skeptical of discovery learning but that does sound like a great a great story Teddy Teddy picking up the rudiments of mandarin from his tablet yeah that's great um, so there have been some similar sort of claims as, uh, to that I think one of the interesting things about all this idea you know now we've got the internet now we've got computers we don't need teachers There's, there have been quite a few sort of arguments in that vein in the last the last couple of decades I think none of them have really worked out and I think it's really interesting here to look at the experience of the pandemic and to look at what that's told us about teaching and education and innovation because I think before the pandemic, there was, I would say, arguments on both sort of left, the left and right of politics that there are big problems with traditional schools and the fact that traditional schools, they look the same as schools have for decades. That's a problem. And so the argument on, on, on the left would probably be this, this more Rousseauian discovery learning one where we can just give the children the tablets and they'll learn and their creativity will flourish and we don't have to worry about the teacher in the classroom. And the argument on, on I would say, more on the right is is in probably that that uh, essentially that unions are are keeping schools the way they are to give teachers jobs and if only we could get rid of the dead hand of the teaching unions that would open up a, a world where students would uh, be able to pursue things that are far more economically valuable and would lead them to be better functioning kind of you know um Cogs in the capitalist world when they get older. So I think you do interestingly have um, left and right, both with very different motivations, but almost coming at kind of similar, uh, almost coming at similar conclusions that we can get rid of the classroom, we can get rid of the teacher, t kids can learn on tablets. Uh, and in the right wing case, I, I would say, 
I'm saying so sort of right wing here, you know, right wing in economic sense, but I would say the person who made this case probably the most, I, I would say Clayton Christensen, um, who is a theorist of um, economic disruption. And he wrote a book about how education would be disrupted, where he pretty much makes the argument I've just said about unions almost being the dead hand and that once something comes along to disrupt um, that traditional model of a school, a physical based school, then you are going to see what the power of the Internet can do. Now, obviously, we had that disruption. Here's what's so fascinating. We had that disruption, uh, you, you know, worldwide. Kids could not go to school. They had lots of them, not all of them, but lots of them had their tablets, their devices were connected. And what happened? Everyone said, I want to go back to school. <laughs> right. So uh, this uh, we had the disruption and it turns out for whatever reason, you can't just learn sitting on a tablet. You can't just learn sitting on the computer. Do you think we always undervalue the socialisation element of education and schooling too? So I think that's absolutely part of it. And we obviously learned that in the pandemic, that school is not just about learning, that school is also about the socialisation, being around people. And that's an important part of it too. But I would go further than that. And I actually, I'm, I'm going to, you know, I made some predictions. I wrote a book about education technology that was published a month before the pandemic and all the school closures. <laughs> so I was making a bunch of predictions myself and making a bunch of claims about what might happen. Uh, and I'm going to be bold here and say, I think a lot of them have stood up quite well. <laughs> and one of the points I made in my book was that we often think of the reason why we often say all schools have to be in person is because of the socialisation aspects. But in a sense, we almost sometimes, even people who believe in the physical based school, they almost concede the point where, well, I guess all this information stuffing into heads that can happen, that can happen remotely. But we need the schools for socialisation. I would go even further. I would say we need the schools for socialisation, but I'm not even so sure that the stuffing information into heads is something that can happen remote as, as, as much as we think remotely. I actually think there's a physical element to that more than we might think. Um, and the reason I'd say that is I think there's emerging research on this, and I think the pandemic has kind of made people think about it more. But even before then, the research that I was looking at shows that we pay attention to humans when they are physically present much more than when they are on a screen. And that happens from a very young age. So you have 18 month old babies. And when you have a person saying something on a screen, they don't pay attention as much as if that same person is saying the same thing in person. So there is something in us that is hardwired to give other human beings who are present more attention. Thank goodness. Yeah. And it's very likely that there's some kind of evolutionary hardwiring there. And you can understand why evolution, we might have been hardwired to pay attention to actual humans in our midst <laughs> who are present. So I think that's a huge thing about uh, the need for some element of you know, a physical place in the classroom in education. And this ties into, I think, some other very interesting theories that are going around in a minute, more, more widely in, in politics and economics. And it's a term, I, I think I came across it in the writings of um, a guy called Matt Clifford, who ran a very interesting newsletter on technology, inter interface between technology and, and, and politics, and also does lots of things on technology, entrepreneurship. And he has this phrase, the stubborn persistence of the physical. So what he means by that is we're living in a world that's been transformed by, by information, by invisible bits that fly around in clouds that, that can disrupt industries and transform our lives and make some people billionaires and wipe other people out. And that is all true and it is happening. But the physical still persists underneath that. And I think we've seen that most urgently in the last few years with the energy crisis, that all of this information age superstructure does sit on the base of energy. And where that energy is and how you get that energy to places and how you transport it and who owns it. These are really important factors and they are physical, tangible factors. So I think you can, if you are in the world of technology, get kind of carried away by the weightless atoms floating around in the cloud. 
and there is a lot of power in those. I don't want to deny that. But the physical still matters. Yeah. And I think it matters for the world. And I think it matters in ways that we haven't probably quite realised yet for education. So I don't think you can turn it all into uh, something remote. I think there is something in, in, in where maybe intrinsically you do have to be in person. And I think to go back to the early point I made about the difference between adult education and education of younger students, I think that is particularly important with, with younger children. And I think all kinds of things that maybe to adults seem a bit trivial or dull, like where a student is looking and where, where their eyes are and where their gaze is, that to an adult maybe they can feel they're, they're not really relevant, but actually they, they really matter. Um, so I think all of those things we can forget. And so when people say, oh, I can't believe this classroom looks exactly the same as it did 200 years ago, isn't that a sign of how backward education is? Oh, you know, it's the unions having a block on things, blah, 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 blah. I will always say there are other things in life where the physical matters and where things will look the same on a superficial level as they did a couple hundred years ago. But what has happened beyond that has changed. And my favourite example is food. So I think a lot of us would say, yeah, you can look at people eating dinner or lunch around a table and that might look superficially very similar to people sitting around a table eating 200 years ago. And the reason why it does is because there are just almost biological, physical limits. We need to eat food. (laughs) We need certain kind of things we have to consume. We need to eat at certain regular points of the day. Those things aren't going to change. They're kind of physical, biological facts. But the way that food arrives at our table and the types of food we eat, that has been transformed by technology. No pasta pesto in the 18th century. Right, right, absolutely. (laughs) So that is the kind of way I think about education. I, I don't think the look of it has to change. It probably is going to stay the same, but that doesn't preclude transformation. But that transformation just might not be immediately visible. But if we just think the transformation has to be visible, I mean, it's a very superficial way of looking at things. And it ignores the fact, as I said before, that a lot of learning, um, you know, a lot of it is invisible when it's hard to it's, it's, it's hard to monitor. Um, so I think that, yeah, if you look at some of the themes that are coming out of this, one of the themes is always how do you deal with personalisation? How do you deal with the fact there's never going to be as many teachers as students and all the problems that entails? And that's where people are always looking for a hack or a trick or a shortcut or a technology or an innovation. And I think we probably could should keep looking for those. But I think we also um, need to realise that uh, the human teacher it's, is, is important. And I think, you know, getting rid of them is, is going to be really hard, whatever technological innovation we come up with. That's great. It's nice to know that we won't be making loads of teachers redundant (laughs) just yet. That's been a really quick tour through a couple of hundred years of educational innovations. And I hope it's provided a bit of context for thinking about very modern and current innovations like ChatGPT, which we mentioned at the very start. And just thinking all over, I do think that one of the conclusions to, to draw from all of this is the importance of educational assessment. Now, obviously, my day job is in educational assessment, so I am quite biased. But I think that all of the stories in this episode show that if you're going to innovate, you need some way of telling if the new innovation is brilliant or a disaster. And that is why you need something with measurement. And that's why assessment is so important. So on that note of shameless self-promotion for the cause of educational assessment, uh, I'll finish this episode and hope you are looking forward to the next one. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.